Let's read the passage. It begins in verse 18. John writes, and he says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. And if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Now, here's the purpose for this portion. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you or deceive you. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. One of the most emotionally painful things that a human can experience is that of deception or, or perhaps the revelation um, that you have been deceived or that in some way the wool has been pulled over your eyes and you've been uh, tricked. In the human realm, as it deals with human relationships, it is an absolute given uh, that human beings have needs. Uh, we come into this world uh, as infants, and we, we are absolutely, completely incapable of caring for ourselves. So from the very beginning of our lives, when we first come out, we are dependent upon someone else. We're dependent upon our parents to feed us, to, to take care of us, to clothe us, to shelter us, and do all of the things that parents do. As we continue to grow, uh, our needs change, but the needs are still very present. We need teachers, people to instruct us and help us along and to understand the way that the world works and to get us acclimated to real life and people that have gone before us that can then instruct us and give us an example of how it is that we're to live our lives. Uh, as we continue to grow, the needs change, but there's still needs. There's things that, uh, um, that, that we need to um, be taught, leaders. We have pastors. We have mentors. We have um, people that we look up to in, in our professional lives. And all throughout our lives, there are needs that we have. And they're not just external needs, but some of those needs are emotional needs. There's a drive inside of us to, uh, to love and to be loved. And that's not something that we can produce or obtain from ourselves or in and of ourselves. And so that comes from another person. And so all throughout our life, we lean upon human beings for things that we have need of by the very design of God, as he made us creatures that are not independent. We're dependent on other people. But when someone that we have trusted in or we've made ourselves vulnerable to in any way has deceived us, we realize that they're not who they, they uh, put themselves forth to be, or they, they've been leading a double life, or they are something altogether different than what they've allowed us to believe that they are, then there's a pain that's associated with that deception. 
we feel it and, and it makes us feel um, vulnerable. It makes us feel kind of naked. It makes us feel uh, unsure. We lose our security. And sometimes it even makes us feel stupid that we didn't see what it was that was in front of us all along at the time that that revelation comes. And so there's damage that's done in us when we've been deceived. The, the very first thing is that our needs that we were hoping to have met in that person all of a sudden become unmet because we realize that that person isn't meeting that need. They're, they're not who they were supposed to be within my life. That's the first thing. But the greater damage that's done when we're deceived is that we lose the ability or it becomes very difficult for us then to trust another person. Because we felt that pain and we knew that we were deceived the first time and we don't want to go through that again. And so it makes it very difficult for us to get the things that we have need of from other people. Now, all of that happens in the human realm and it happens very often. But now if you bring it into the spiritual realm, the same thing is true, but the stakes are much, much higher. When it concerns the things of God... You're dealing with things that are of a much deeper nature. You're dealing with issues and questions that are of a much more um, uh, eternal nature. They lie at the root of our very existence. The questions that all of us have continually about our origin, that is, where did we come from, and our destiny, where are we going, our purpose, why in the world are we here, and our questions concerning the person of God. Who or what is God? What made all this? And what made me? And, and we don't come into this world with a knowledge of any of those things. Which means that, that, that by our very existence, in some way, we're dependent upon someone else in order to help us to come into an understanding of spiritual things. Now, because spiritual things are invisible, we're at an even greater disadvantage when it comes to those things. And therefore, we're we have an even greater dependency upon someone who knows these things to help us along. Because they're not things that we can see, they're not things that we can touch or are tangible or that we can relate to on the physical existence. Now, God, again, has made it that way. Ephesians chapter 5 says, I'm sorry, it's chapter 4. It says that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the perfecting of the body of Christ, for the building up of the church so that we have the truth and we can be completed in the truth. And so God has ordained it that there are human leaders, human beings that help other human beings come into a right and full knowledge of God. I, I was talking with a brother just this morning, and we were talking about how probably just about every person, at least in the United States of America, or that, 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 you know, that has a Bible in their house, at some point they pick it up and they try to read it. And I remember doing that as a little kid, just picking up the Bible and being like, you know, I want to say that I read the Bible. And I think I got as far as like Genesis chapter 3 or 4. And I realized I'm going to need a little help with this, <laughs> you know, and maybe you can relate to that. You know, you've picked up the Bible, you've maybe sat in a church service and, you know, the things of God were communicated to you in some way and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm lost. <laughs> I don't have a clue. And so God has made it in such a fashion that we need a little bit of help in coming along and coming into an understanding of the things of God. And so what happens is that we go maybe to a church service or we meet a Christian or we come in contact with uh, uh, some, some um, expression of Christianity in some place or in some way. And we come into it and, and we're completely trying to be open. And so we observe it and we see, okay, there's a large crowd of people here and these people all seem to be comfortable with what's going on here. We see or hear a human leader doing something much like what I'm doing right now. And we see that they have a, a certain uh, amount of charisma or personality that we can connect with. Or they say things perhaps of a mystical nature or a mysterious nature that are intriguing to us in some way. Or they have some kind of an insight and they seem to know a thing or two about what they're talking about. And so we give them our attention and, and we 
We give our allegiance to them in some way. They win our trust. And we come to a place where, all right, this seems by all outward appearances and everything that I'm experienced enough to assess that this is a safe place for me to uh, grow in the things of God and to know the things of God. And that happens. That happens to pretty much everyone who comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what also happens all too often is that that leader or that person who's standing in the place of, of, of uh, the, the Lord for the sake of teaching people, he comes eventually to be exposed to be a deceiver in some way. There's something about his life that's revealed or something about his beliefs or something about his person that ultimately becomes exposed and you realize that you have given your allegiance and your trust to someone who isn't living out the things that he's speaking out or the things that he's teaching out and you realize that you've been deceived. And so now you've been spiritually deceived. And when you've been spiritually deceived, it makes you feel the same way as when you're deceived in the human realm, but on a very much different or deeper level. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. Your sense of security has now been shaken. In your mind, you're thinking, well, all of these things that this person has been, been speaking to me as truth and that I've received as truth, I now realize that they didn't believe the very things that they were saying. And if they don't believe the things that they were saying, then how can I know if those things are true? And therefore, the damage that's done when someone has been spiritually deceived is that the need that they were hoping to have met is automatically brought to a, 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 a category of unmet. And now I find it very difficult for myself to ever trust another human being again. And therefore, I have become estranged from the advantage that a human leader, a faithful one, would be given into my life. And so deception happens on a spiritual level in the whole thing. And so that gives you and I, as we sit here tonight and we think about these things, that gives us two choices. We can either say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to protect myself against that. Therefore, I am never going to trust a human being at all with any of the spiritual development or growth that, that is within my life. That, that's a choice that we have. But if we do that, then we miss out on what God intended when he appointed human leaders over his people, faithful ones, that is. The other choice that I have, far better choice in my opinion, is that we can build certain safeguards into our understanding in order that we might be protected or safeguarded against spiritual deception. And so as we come to this portion of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, what the Apostle John gives to you and I here is he gives to us six characteristics of false teachers or false leaders or six defense mechanisms that we can apply to our understanding in such a way wherein we can gain what we need to gain from a human instrument that God wants to use and at the same time be protected against spiritual deception so that we don't find ourselves off in left field or feel ourselves violated or feel ourselves uh, you know maybe in a place where our security in the things of God has been shaken in some way and so John gives to us these things here as we look into uh, our text. And so he begins in verse 18 by just communicating to us the reality of spiritual deceivers. There are spiritually deceptive people that do not have your best interest in mind. He says again, he says, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists whereby we know it is the last time. John tells us here at the very beginning that we are living in the last days. Now, with the death, resurrection, ascension, and then the ensuing Pentecost, all of those things surrounding the death of Christ and the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that ushered in a period of spiritual time that is known in the Bible as the last days. Meaning that from the time of Pentecost all the way until where we are right now in God's timeline, we are in what God calls the last days. 
And what that means is that there's not going to be any other segment of time after this as it relates to human history and the world as it stands right now. The next event on God's interruption calendar is the second coming of Jesus Christ and the changing of all things as we know it. There's not going to be another shift or another dispensation of time. And so therefore, in John's day, even unto our day, we are in the segment of time called the last days. And John says that there is a very clear, distinct event that's going to happen at the end of that time known as the coming of the Antichrist. He says, you have heard, it is written, that the Antichrist will come. Now, who is the Antichrist? The word Antichrist literally means two things. It means against Christ, and it means in place of Christ. It means both of those things. And the Bible teaches us that at the end of the age, there will be a one-world ruler that will come on the scene that has all of the solutions for all of mankind's problems. He'll come in on a white horse. He will be extremely unassuming, and he will be very deceptive. And he will come in the place of Christ, meaning that his deception and his character, his personality, and what he does is so seemingly Christ-like that Jesus said if it were possible, even Christians would be deceived into thinking that he is the Christ. So he will come in place of Christ and his deception will be so strong that the whole world will think that he is Jesus Christ. But at the same time he is in the place of Christ, he will be against Christ. That at the core and the root of his motives, everything that's in him will be against the things of God. He will stand in opposition to the true gospel of God and therefore he will be the supreme deception. Because he will seem to be everything that he is not, and he will not seem to be everything that he is. He is the Antichrist. Now, it's not John's purpose to get into a teaching on the end times or the person of the Antichrist. His purpose is to say what he says next, and that is this. That even now, there are many Antichrists in the world. What's the connection? The connection is this. John is saying that there are many that are in the world even now that are standing in the place of Christ in the lives of his people, and yet at the core of what they are, they are absolutely against him and all that they are and what they stand for. They are deceivers. And John says, by this, we know that it is the last time. Now, when Jesus gave his teaching on the end times, the very first thing that he said to you and I that we're to watch out for is spiritual deception. He said, take heed that no man deceive you, for many will come in my name saying that I am Christ and will deceive many. It isn't that they're going to come and say, I am Christ. That's not the idea. The idea is they're going to come and they're going to say, I am Christ. In other words, that he is Christ. Jesus was speaking in the first person. They're going to say that I'm the Christ. They're going to profess everything perfectly. But Jesus says, take heed because they're deceptive. The apostle Paul said concerning the last days, he said that in the last days, evil men and seducers, seducers are deceivers, will wax worse and worse. Now, if a deceiver is waxing worse and worse, it means that they're getting better and better, right? The better the deceiver, the worse they are, but the more deceivable is the person that takes heed to what they're doing. And so John says, listen, you've got to understand that if you're living in the last days, spiritual deceivers and spiritual deception is going to be a major problem. And there probably couldn't be a more fitting time for a word like this than the days that we're living in right now. I mean, the amount of spiritual confusion and just confusion in the world as a whole in general it makes the world, it makes people ripe to be deceived in spiritual things. And so John is writing now concerning this reality, and now he seeks to give us the safeguards that we might be on defense against it. So how can we defend 
ourselves or protect ourselves against being spiritually deceived in the days that we live in. And so the first thing that John gives to us in verse 19 is that someone who is truly standing in for God and speaking for God and representing God will continually abide in the doctrine of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, they, that is the deceivers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, the context of what John is speaking of when he says that they went out from us is that they went out doctrinally. That is, that they crossed the boundaries of what defines the gospel of Jesus Christ as the true way of God unto salvation. In this Christian thing that you and I are a part of, this church thing that we've been bought into and that we've been born into because we've been born again by Jesus Christ, there is a such thing as absolute truth. We call them the essentials of the faith. The uncompromising tenets or facet of what defines Christianity as what it is. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created man in his image. Did you catch the order there? God first, and then he created man in his image. Now, what man likes to do is that man likes to create God in his image, Meaning that we want to be autonomous and say, well, there's certain things about what God says about himself that I don't like. And so I'm going to choose not to believe those things about God. And I'm going to create my own God who's according to my image. And my God loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. But my God loves me the way I am. And my God loves me in my sin. And my God loves me when I believe these things about him. And we then move away from God telling us who he is. And we're beginning to now tell God who he is. So what are the essentials? What are the absolute, non-bending, uncompromising truths that make the gospel the gospel? Well, concerning Jesus, first of all, his deity. The fact that Jesus is God. His virgin birth, according to the scriptures. His death, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming. The fact that he ever lives right now to return us. The cross and the blood as the only means of salvation. Salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The truth and fact that we must be born again if we will see the kingdom of God. The repentance and turning away of our sins and having those things washed in his blood and then transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. The absolute truth and authority of the Bible, the word of God, as being God-ordained, God-breathed scripture. All of these things are essentials that define the gospel and the faith as what it is. And those things cannot change. And when a person takes any one of those things, even the smallest of those things that are non-bending essentials, and they say, that's not true, what they've done is they have gone outside the boundaries of what defines the faith is what it is. And when a teacher or a leader goes outside the boundaries of what things are essential, then that's the first clue that that person is a deceiver. They have left the true tenets of the faith of Christianity. Now, there are other things that we consider non-essentials, meaning that you can be a Christian and you, or you could have two Christians and they might each believe two different things concerning this. Non-essentials are things like the day of the week that we should worship on. Uh, things like whether creation happened in six days or whether creation happened over a period of time. Some people can be wrong in thinking that it happened over a period of time, but they can have that right to be wrong concerning that and they can still be saved or born again. Concerning the rapture or the timing of end times things, whether the rapture will happen before, during, or after the tribulation and the reign of the Antichrist, those are non-essential things. It doesn't change the status of your salvation. 
Baptism, infant baptism versus adult baptism, church government and style, liturgy, clothing and dress. All of those things are things that we can form opinions about or we can, we can seek direction on in the scripture, but they don't determine whether or not we're saved or not. Those are non-essentials. And those things, you know, don't mark someone who's false. But essentials absolutely do. Now, let me say this before we move on, just for my own sake. This, this is for me tonight. That doesn't mean a person can't make a mistake. You're sitting in a church service. You hear them say something. You say, you know, that sounded like that moves outside the boundaries of what's acceptable, you know, and the whole thing. And, and you know, yeah, we, we're human. I'm human. I put my pants on one leg at a time. And I can make a mistake, you know. But when a person makes it their doctrinal position or their belief concerning God or their teaching concerning the things of God and that declaration or position is outside the clear, plain, simple teaching of what Christianity or the gospel is, then you can mark in your mind that I need to be careful. This person might very well be a false teacher. One of the things that uh, as a teacher, I take this very seriously because, I mean, I remember there was one, um, one Sunday morning that a, a young girl, uh, probably in her early 20s, approached me in the hallway on a Sunday morning here. And she said, I just want to thank you. And I said, okay, what for? And, and she, said, uh, she said, I have, have had this incredibly difficult decision that I've had to make for about six months now. And it's been the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. And it really is altering the change in the course of, of the rest of my life. And she said, you said something two weeks ago that just was to me the answer of what I'm supposed to do, and I just want to thank you for that. And she was being, you know, grateful and, and seeking to encourage me. I was shaking. And, and I thought to myself, as she said, I, I just, it, I realized, I already knew this, but I realized people are making decisions about the direction and the course of their life based upon things I'm saying while I'm teaching the Bible on a Wednesday night. And then the severity of that hit me, and I realized it. And one of the things that helps me, and, 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 and you know, not just dying of fear every time that I'm going to ruin someone's life when I'm teaching the Bible, is that I recognize that my role in what I'm doing right now is not, is not climbing, I'm not climbing up a tree, like this tree of 1 John chapter 2, and picking the fruit that's there and throwing it down to all of you that aren't able to, you know, find it for yourselves. That, that's not what I'm doing right here. What I'm doing right now is I'm building a ladder so that you can climb the tree with me and you can pick the fruit for yourselves. And what that means is that when we uncover these things in the scripture, you're not saying, where in the world did he get that? But you're saying, wow, I never saw that before, but there it is. And now I own it for myself. And he's not telling me something I needed him to tell me. But as he's saying it, I'm recognizing and realizing that's right there for me. It's fruit that I can pick for myself and then add to my life. And so that's the purpose behind a leader in the body of Christ, is that you should be encouraged to bring, to come up, come up into the tree, pick the fruit for yourselves. Not so with a false teacher. The second defense that we have concerning um, the, this, this uh, um, deception that, that all of us are vulnerable to is the unction that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 20, he says, but you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. The word unction could also be uh, translated and sometimes is anointing. And what it speaks of is it speaks of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that has been given to every single person that makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. When we give our lives to Christ, the Bible says he automatically and immediately imparts to us his Holy Spirit. That word unction is also translated literally a smearing. If you have kids, you know what that means. You know, we went to a wedding this past weekend, and we and the boys had time to kill. Georgia was one of the bridesmaids, so I took them to Chipotle. And they had their suits on, the tie and the thing. And, you know, the, they put their hand in the you know, the food, and then, you know, the smearing, you know, on the suit, you know, on the whole thing. It's a smearing. And, and the idea is that you have been given something that has been spread across your life that isn't easily removed. And when a person gives their life to Christ, God gives to them his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God is an element of God that's living inside of us. He unlocks the truth of God 
and he teaches us all things. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, um, verse 26. He said, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. And so basically what God is telling us here is that he has given us a part of himself that works from the inside of us that imparts truth and understanding to our person. In John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus said this. He said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and he will show it unto you. And so Jesus promised to us that we would be given the Holy Spirit, this unction, and that because we have this unction, John says here, back in 1 John, that we know all things. What that means is this, is that part of our defense against deception is that the voice of the Spirit of God is within us, and there are times when he speaks, or he pulls, or he prods, or he does something inside of us, and the spiritual check engine light goes on. You know, the check engine light in your car, it tells you that something's not working the way that it should. God gives us one of those spiritually. And so we'll be in a place, or in a position, or in a teaching, or something, listening on the radio, And the check engine light will come on. We'll say, there's something about this that isn't sitting right with me. And I don't know what it is. Can't put my finger on it. But something's not right. It's a check in my spirit. When the Apostle Paul came into the region of Philippi, he was joined by a young woman who followed him everywhere he went with these words. She said, these men declare the way of the Most High God and they speak the truth. Now, that was a true statement. They were declaring the way of the Most High God, and they were telling the truth. But after a couple of days of hearing these words from this young woman, Paul got a check in his spirit. His check engine light went on. And on a certain occasion, he turned around and he looked at her, and he said, be silent, demon. And he cast a demon out of the young girl. And she was then cleansed of her, of her you know, um, condition, and it caused great problems for Paul there in the city of Philippi. But see, she was speaking all the right things, but yet something in Paul didn't sit right, and he realized this isn't coming from God. We're getting false advertising here, or advertising from the enemy, and God doesn't need it, and God doesn't want it, and he casts a demon out of the girl. And sometimes that will happen to you and I. It's a defense. Listen to it. It doesn't mean that we rely every time on how we feel, but we listen to that voice, and we then wait for more information. So we've been given an unction. The third thing that John tells to us that we have as a defense, and this is probably the greatest defense that any one of us has concerning spiritual deception, is that we've been given the truth. Look at it in verse 21. He says, I've not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. The greatest defense that anyone can ever have against deception is to have the truth. When you have the truth... You cannot be deceived or lied to because the truth always speaks louder than the lie, or at least it sits better. So what is the truth that we have that John says? The truth is the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, as he prayed for you and I, he said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God, the Bible that you and I have right here is the truth. And it's the privilege that you and I have that we can immerse ourselves in the truth of God and that becomes an automatic immunity or defense against deception as it comes. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32, Jesus said that if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Free of what? 
free of everything, but absolutely free of deception. You cannot be deceived when you have the truth. Why was Eve deceived by Satan? Do you know why? Because she didn't know the word of God. What did Satan do? He came and he said, Hath God said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? He tested her and she failed. She said, no, God said of all the trees in the garden, we can freely eat. But of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said that we're not to eat of it or touch it lest we die. Satan knew he had her. She doesn't know the word of God. He didn't say you can't touch it. She's vulnerable. And then he began to prey on the fact that she wasn't sealed with truth and he got in with deception because she wasn't guarded by the word of God. Why wasn't Satan able to deceive Jesus? Since you're the son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. Since you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. If you're the son of God, just bow down, worship me and all will be yours. How did Jesus defeat that deception that attacked? Three times Jesus replied with, it is written. It is written. It is written. And it says that Satan left him for a season because he found no place. The word of God is the greatest defense that you and I have against deception. The first church that I was a part of as a young believer where I was discipled and ordained, there was a young man who had uh, a particular zeal and it seemed a calling on his life for the things of ministry. But he was kind of drafted or or coerced by a group of people that were very definitely false teachers. They were into the spiritual mysticism combined with Christianity and denied the word of God. And there was all kinds of big problems with it. And he began to get the ear of one of the other young men in the church. And he began to kind of bring them along. And he was very charismatic and very persuasive in the way that he went about doing things. And I remember that there was a particular occasion that the three of us were together. Me, the young man who was in this kind of deception, and then the young man that he was trying to bring along with him. And as the three of us were together for the course of a whole day, the young man who was um, not, you know, steeped in it yet, but the young man who who the, the other guy was preying on was asking questions. And he was asking me questions. He was saying, well, are we sure that there's hell? I mean, is there really a hell? And and my answer to him, every question that he gave to me, and I didn't even realize I was doing it, was, well, the Bible says in, and I would take him to the reference, and I would show him what the Bible said. And so according to what the Bible says, it's very definitely true that, and I would give him this. And then a little bit later, another question would come up. Well, is it true that, and I said, well, the Bible says this. And after about six to eight hours of us hanging out together, and after about six or eight questions about, well, is it true that, and me saying, well, the Bible says, this guy, the zealous, wayward deceiver guy, he finally, he smacked his hand on the table and he looked at me and he goes, would you quit opening that thing? And it was like, whoa, you know, and there was a silence in the room. You cannot contest with the word of God and you can't be deceived if you have the word of God. It's the greatest privilege that we have. And John says, I don't write these things to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do have the truth and that no lie is of the truth. The fourth uh, mark of a deceiver, a way that we can um, be protected against deception is given to us in verses 22 and 23. And that is that deceivers, seducers of the faith, will ultimately, eventually, either deny the deity of Jesus Christ or they will diminish his person in some way. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. And if that abides in you, then you shall continue in the Father and in the Son. The Bible emphatically and clearly declares to us that Jesus is not only the Christ, but that Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. The word was God. And then it says in verse 14, and the word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us. 
to Jesus is ascribed the act of creation in Colossians chapter 1 and in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus was worshipped and he did not rebuke the worship and say, whoa, 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 like any angel or any other created being would have if he was true. Jesus is very definitely God. And it will always be the purpose of Satan to diminish Jesus in some way and to make him less than God. Because if he is not God, then he is not qualified to be redeemer. And so a cult or a deceiver or a spiritual deceiver will at some point diminish the person or the deity of Christ and bring him down into the realm of man. Or he will elevate man into the realm of Christ. Both things diminish the person of Jesus Christ. And when a person diminishes Christ or ascribes to him a title other than deity, you can mark right away that that person is a deceiver and that their belief system is not God's belief system. The fifth thing uh, or mark that you can uh, have to protect yourself against a false teacher or to recognize a false teacher is that a false teacher will always have an evolving doctrine. Notice in verse 24, he says, let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, then you shall continue in the Father, or in the Son, and in the Father. The gospel does not evolve, and it does not change. The truth of God, the person of God, the word of God is constant and enduring. And therefore, if I'm going to prove the test of time as being a servant of God, justly called so, then one of the marks of that service is going to be that I'm going to be consistent in my teaching. I'm not going to be evolving and changing constantly the things that I believe and saying, well, I used to think this, but now I've come into a higher enlightenment. And as I've grown closer to God, I've realized that, you know, the things that we thought this meant doesn't really mean that. And this whole thing, listen, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21, that we're to meddle not with those that are given to change. Meaning that if there's a constant changing of what is believed or what is taught or what is ascribed to be truth of God, if I feel the need to constantly be bending things in order to make it more attractive or new and exciting, then it's a sure mark that it's not real, that there's a falseness in me. God doesn't change. His truth doesn't change. The teaching shouldn't change. The sixth mark and there's a jump here. We jump down to verse 29. And we'll, don't worry, we're not going to skip over those verses. We'll come back to them to close the service tonight. But in verse 29, he gives to us the sixth mark or way that we can defend ourselves or recognize deception when it presents itself. He says in verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, that is, Jesus is righteous, then you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. That is, a true man of God or leader of God or Christian is going to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. They're going to do righteousness. I was reading in my devotions this week in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You know, I try to do the one-year Bible. Notice I stuck the word try in there, you know. Um, you know, we get through it when we get through it, you know. But uh, that was part of my segment. And one of my readings this week was Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Deuteronomy 5 is a significant passage because it's where the Ten Commandments are kind of reiterated by Moses. It's the, 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 you know, the other place where the Ten Commandments are written. And Moses prefaces his giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 1 by saying that these things are given to you. And he gives three reasons. He says that you might learn them, that you might keep them, that is, keep them in your memory, and then number three, that you might do them. That you might learn, that you might keep, preserve, and that you might do the things that God has said. Now, there are many people, and this is why deceivers exist as long as they exist. How can someone be a deceiver and just continue and continue and continue? I saw an article this week, <laughs> Bob, Robert Tilton. Anybody know who Robert Tilton is in here? He was a televangelist back in the 70s who just was exposed for every scandal, theft, robbery. I mean, he was wicked. He's still in the ministry. 
You know, he's got five people in his congregation, you know, but he's still in the minute. How do these people survive? You know how they survive? Because they know how to learn and they know how to keep. They can learn the things of God and they can remember the things of God. They can regurgitate the things of God, but those things are not the mark of what makes someone true. It's learn, keep, and do. And when a person is exposed that they're not living the life that they're preaching, then that exposes the fact that they're a deceiver. And here's why it exposes their deception. Because only the Spirit of God can empower a life to live the things that God calls us to live to. The whole reason why we needed to be saved by grace through faith is because we're not able to keep the law. So if I'm trying to keep and do the things of God apart from the Spirit's help, I'm going to fail every time. So I can't fake Christianity in terms of my behavior. I can hide it for a while, but when my lifestyle is exposed, it reveals the fact that I'm untrue. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so it isn't just what someone says or what someone remembers or can, can preach, but are they actually living the life? That's a mark. And when a person is exposed to not be living the life, then that person can be marked as being fake. So what are the stakes? What's at stake in all this as we close out tonight and we land this thing and understand what, what, what John is getting at here? What is the purpose of John's message and the hope and the call that he gives to us? Notice what he gives to us in verse 25. He tells us what's at stake. He says, and this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. What's at stake in all of this is your eternity and mine. Do you want to gamble with your eternal existence and where you're going to be? I don't. I want to be absolutely certain that the things that I'm learning, the things that I'm following, believing, and doing, the things that I'm putting my faith in, are the very things that God says, this is the gospel, this is the way, this is the life. And so John says it's very important that you and I are not deceived in what we believe concerning eternal things. We must take heed to this message. He says that his purpose for writing it in verse 26, he says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you or them that deceive you. The very reason I'm speaking this to you is because I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to miss heaven because you believed a false gospel because you were led astray by something that was absolutely untrue. And then he gives us hope. In verse 27, hope in dark days. He says, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you don't need that any man should teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Meaning that we can rely upon the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our lives to help us when we yield to him to do so. Does that mean that we should live uh, hermit Christian lives? We don't need church. We don't need other believers. We should never, you know, listen to a sermon or a teaching. We don't need any man. No, 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 no. Scripture with scripture, right? It says that he's given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. But what it does mean is this. It means that we don't have to be super hasty to throw all of our allegiance in with a man or with a ministry. The position of our life is to be, I am with you as long as you're with Christ. As long as your ministry is in alignment with what God says and with the gospel that's been delivered. And as long as with what you're saying in the word of God bears witness with the spirit of God in my life, then I'm willing to follow with you as we follow Christ together. But the moment that you step outside the boundaries of what God has revealed as true, then I'm, I'm gone and I'm not violated. I won't feel deceived. I'm not going to feel vulnerable like I can't believe this thing anymore because my faith is not in you. My faith is in him and in what he said. And John says that's our hope is that we can rely upon the anointing that he has given to us. And then finally, the call that John has given to us in verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him. Put your eyes, get your mind, put your focus on him. Don't look at a human leader. Don't put your spiritual allegiance in human entities. Him. That 
when he shall appear, we may have confidence, that is assurance, and not be ashamed before him at his coming because we've been deceived in some way. The worship team can come as we close out uh, the service tonight. There's never been a time in the history of the church where John's words are more necessary than they are today. The level of spiritual deception is absolutely immeasurable and off the charts. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. In the last two of those letters, the, the letter to the church in Philadelphia and the letter to the church in Laodicea, both of those two churches represent the church in the very last days, in the very time before the second coming of Christ. And they're very contrasting. And one was kind of weak and had a little bit of strength. And they had an open door, but they didn't really know what to do with it. And Jesus commended that church. Why? Because they had the word of God, they were keeping the word of God, and they were keeping their eyes on him. And he said, that's the true church, and I'm going to keep them from the hour of tribulation. The other church was the church in Laodicea. That church had all the appearance that it was prosperous and right. They were rich. They had money. They were increased with goods. Everything was, was humming the way that it should be. It was perfect from the outside looking in. But Jesus looked at that church, and he stood outside of it. And he said, you have no idea that you're poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. You're lukewarm. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And he says, you're in bad, bad shape. The two churches of the last days. And you and I absolutely need to be on guard concerning the false gospel. The spirit of Antichrist looks real close to the real thing. And unless the safeguards that God has given to you and I are set up in our lives, then you and I are just as vulnerable as anyone else to falling into spiritual deception. But if we'll listen to what John says in his word, and we set the boundaries, this is the gospel. If we rely on the unction, the Holy Spirit living inside of me, if I immerse myself in the truth of God, if I remain steadfast in my doctrine, if I keep my eyes on him, then I'm going to make it through and I won't be ashamed before him at his coming. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray that you would help each one of us here tonight, that not one of us would ever find ourselves off the narrow path because we believe something that wasn't true. We recognize, God, that you've given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for our sake. And we pray, Lord, I pray right now for every person here that each of us would be led in the right ways to the right people, and that we would have the proper safeguards built up in our hearts. We ask that you would give us your word in an ever-increasing way. And that you would make us faithful to you in all things. Oh Lord, we await your return. And we ask that you would keep us by your shepherding hand until you come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat>